Welcome to the latest edition of the Ask Qubit About Analytics podcast, brought to you by Qubit, the trusted experts in analytics. Our goal is to cut through the jargon and hype around analytics and data science and share practical advice to guide you on your analytics journey. You can find us at qubit.com, that's Q-U-E-B-I-T.com. Thank you for joining me today. I'm A.G. Tan. Right now, the hottest topic in financial and operational planning is artificial intelligence or AI. As computers have become more powerful, the price per unit of power has dropped, and the advent of cloud computing has made both computing power and, perhaps more importantly, data more readily available. In Qubit's planning and analysis world, this has led to a lot of interest in predictive forecasting, which is our topic for today, and which is why I'm thrilled to welcome Qubit's chief data scientist, Scott Mutchler, to the podcast this week. It's hard to quantify Scott's contribution, but I think it's safe to say that he is an inspirational leader and innovator who has spearheaded the growth of Qubit's advanced analytics capabilities to where they are today. Oh. Side note, and he also has an amazing recipe for elk jerky. So thank you for joining me today, Scott. Welcome. Thank you, AG. Thank you for that uh, warm introduction. So Scott, to set the stage, I'd like to start with some basics around business forecasting. Let's say we're a retail business with maybe five stores selling a thousand different products. To make a plan for future sales, the simplest thing we could do, and which I know a lot of people do do, is maybe do something like average the sum of last year's sales and maybe layer on, say, a 10% increase because why not? My gut says it feels right. Um, but there are better ways, aren't there, you know, like predictive forecasting? Yeah, looking um, at the past and assuming that the behavior that you've experienced in the past is going to continue is a perfectly logical business approach. The the issue with that is that we live in a constantly changing dynamic business world, um, and honestly, now more than ever. And that assumption is often not true. Um, so let me give you an example. So th does this sound familiar? A, a company generates a forecast, um, and when the actuals roll in, they have to scramble, um, typically on a Monday morning sales call or review with uh, senior management, to explain the deltas, and especially if the deltas are really negative. Um, in my experience, I'd say about 90% of that kind of Monday morning surprise or quarterly surprise can be avoided by using predictive modeling in your forecast. Um, and predictive modeling isn't magic. It's, it's just about using all available data to predict what will happen. And it's not just assuming that the past behavior is going to continue. It's taking this data that you have at hand and saying, okay, we know that things are changing. We have an estimate of what that change is going to be. How is that going to impact either my operational or my financial forecast? Um, and some examples of things that you may know, just to kind of give you an idea, are do you have an estimate of, of how much you're going to change your marketing? What's your marketing plan look like? Is it the same as it was last quarter? Is it different? Are you going to invest or divest in, in marketing? Are you going to invest in different markets? Do you have any promotions coming up if you're a company that does promotions? Because we know that impacts your forecast. Um, do you have new competitors, whether they're just more competitors or different competitors? Um, are they pricing differently? 
um, do you have any projected supply chain shortfalls? So is, is it your own operational uh, abilities that's gonna impact your forecast, but you have some sense of what's gonna happen. Maybe you have a warehouse that's shutting down um, or maybe your supplier um, can't meet your demand and you know you're gonna have a shortfall. Um, and then there's things like macroeconomics. Is the Fed gonna raise interest rates? Um, or is your biggest customer gonna open any new, new stores? So these are all things that we generally have some sense of what's gonna happen. Maybe we don't have perfect data, but using any data that you can in a predictive fashion is generally going to give you a significantly better forecast. And it's gonna traditionally outperform the historical data by quite a wide margin. And, and as you probably know, in, in most business scenarios, a small increase in, in forecast accuracy can mean potentially tens of millions of dollars. So using all available data in this predictive fashion is incredibly valuable. You know, I, I'm chuckling because you mentioned the Monday morning call explaining, you know, why the actuals are not, you know, trending to what we had forecast before. Um, for me, it's actually a Tuesday morning <laughs> call. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with, with, with that conversation. And um, I think, you know, just to make sure that I've got it right, I, I, I think what you're saying really is that, you know, that traditional kind of modeling people used to do typically in Excel where they just sort of did a, you know, straight extrapolation and maybe added a little bit of um, gravy to the top doesn't really take into account all of those other factors. And when you say it's not magic, what you're really saying is that, you know, there are better ways to model that can take into account some of those other factors. Um, perhaps based um, on on historical um, relationships between them. yeah that, that that's exactly right there's there's really a um, a couple of things that we look at when we're doing a predictive forecast um, the first is pretty obvious it's accounting for seasonality and um, this is a you know well known things you have to deal with when you do forecasting if you have seasonal demand or just seasonal trends in your data um, you really want to what they do is what they call is seasonal decomposition. Take seasonality out of the equation, and then you get the underlying trend. And that trend is the thing that you're really trying to predict into the future. Uh, you can always layer seasonality back on. What affects that trend is two different things in, in our experience. First is long-term effects. So those are things that are affecting the trend over a long time horizon. Uh, good examples of that would be you know, macroeconomic indicators. Um, whether the customer, if you're a, a distributor, the customer you sell to, are they growing or, or, or is their, their overall size declining? Um, is there more or less competition? Um, what's consumer confidence? So there's these long-term effects that affect demand and we can do different types of regression type of analysis to actually uh, figure out their impact on, season, on the, the underlying trend. The next thing would be short-term effects. So these are short-term temporal effects. And these are things that um, happen on a very kind of punctuated basis. And they make a rather often dramatic impact in your, your um, overall uh, actuals and in your forecast modeling. And they're things, they're things like supply chain shortfalls. So last, um, last January, we, we couldn't meet demand and that had a big impact, um, but it wasn't something that's happening over a long time, it was just a short-term effect. Or uh, even a simpler one, if Christmas falling on different days of the week, 
Um, or it could be that you ran a promotion for this short time period. So there's long-term effects and short-term effects, both of which can be modeled using different types of predictive modeling, like different types of regression and, and things like uh, deep learning neural networks and, and random force and things like that. And then the last thing would be accounting for outliers. So once you've taken care of seasonality, you've determined all your long-term effects and you've modeled them, you've taken all your short-term effects and modeled them, there's still these uh, blips in the data that are short-term effects that will never happen again. And sometimes they're not even things that you understand why they happened. Um, so for example, you may know that there was a, a freak snowstorm or a hurricane, and you know that that really impacted your business. Um, or it might be a political election cycle. Um, and it's not something that you can actually add predictability about, but if you leave that data into your forecasting models, um, it will actually corrupt your model. So you have to have a robust way of handling that. So the data science piece of this is um, rather sophisticated. So you've got to do seasonal decomposition, then you've got to model for long-term effects, and you've got to model for short-term effects. And then at some point, you've got to handle your outliers. Um, and so it, it is all 100% completely uh, doable. We've done it multiple times for multiple clients in the past. Uh, but it's definitely a level of sophistication that um, is going to give you a lot of value. But th there's definitely more, comp this is more complicated than just looking at, like, say, seasonal averages. So thanks, Scott. That, that's a great overview. And, and as you've gone through your, your different points here, one thing that you did mention a few times was time and temporal effects. And so that led me to think about this word or this phrase that gets thrown around a lot nowadays, which is time series forecasting. So I was wondering if you could explain to our audience, um, you know, what, what's behind that word when, you know, sales guys and software vendors throw it out? Yeah. Uh so you may be familiar with lots of different type of, of techniques for predicting things like regressions and maybe you know classification and there's, there's different types of, of those type of predictive modeling. Time series is a special case where time is really important. Uh, the structure of the data is fundamental to how you analyze it. So first of all, time series data means that's equally spaced. So it's monthly data, it's weekly data, it's period data. Um, the other implication is that there's often some type of periodicity into the data, meaning that things repeat themselves in some type of a cycle. So seasonality is a great example of that. Um, and it's, it's both a challenge and it's a benefit to think about data in terms of time series. So the, the, the challenge is that um, you have to account for this periodicity and, and cycles in the data, and you have to do things like seasonal decomposition. The benefit is that you have a relationship where the data point for January is related to the data point in December, is related to the data point in November, and that can actually give you additional information to create these mathematical relationships and to actually give you better results than if that time effect wasn't there. So it's just something you have to take into account when you do the analysis or different models and different techniques for doing uh, time series. Uh, so there's some examples that are REMA, um, auto-regressive auto integrated moving average. Uh, there's seasonal models. There's lots of different models, but they all have to deal with these special aspects of time series data. 
Oh, great. Thank you. That's very helpful. I'd like to get into some real life business use cases now. So one question that comes up a lot is whether you should forecast from the top down or from the bottom up. And one of the arguments against bottom up that I have seen in the past basically comes down to constraints. If Excel is all you have, it's physically impossible to do a bottom up forecast for thousands and thousands of SKUs or thousands and thousands of products or people. And so people settle, right, um, on something much more high level and summarized. But now with predictive technology and all this computing power, we really have a game changer, right? So maybe you can elaborate a bit on this? Yeah, I, I want to go back to the theme that I brought up earlier, which is you want to use all available data to make better decisions about your, your forecast, to, to generate a better forecast. And when we're doing that, what we're really trying to do is, is have a highly correlated effect between that additional data. So whether it's macroeconomic data, operational decisions, promotions, and your actual and the actual thing you're trying to forecast. So whether that's a store SKU revenue forecast or whether that's um, some other type of uh, labor utilization forecast you want that correlation to be as strong as possible because again, you're trying to use that information in a useful way to predict what's gonna happen. And typically the correlation is going to be at the strongest at the lowest level. Um, if you're looking at the impact of sales for say a single uh, skew of toothpaste and you're looking at the effect of a promotion, um, you're going to see the effect of the promotion on that single SKU very, there's going to be a very strong correlation. If I do a buy one, get one free or a 20% off, the impact can be very dramatic at that level. If I roll that promotion up to all promotions across health and beauty, now the correlation is going to be much, much weaker. And so if you're doing predictive forecasting, which again, the purpose of predictive forecasting is to use all available data that you have and to generate a better forecast, then you really wanna be doing it the lowest possible level. Now, this obviously generates some issues. For one is, um, what if you have really, really low velocity items and you're trying to use these traditional time series uh, models to do that and they don't really tend to work really well if you only sell one per month or two per month. Um, what they expect is a higher velocity to work really well. Um, so there's a couple of ways to deal with that. One is there's different types of predictive models that you can use. So we have had clients that have items that only sell once every 18 months and they want to generate a forecast for that. Um, there are models like random forest, logistic regression, neural networks that can actually do a fairly good job of predicting even one sale over a very long time horizon. So that is a possibility if you still want to stay at that low level. Another is to roll up to the most appropriate level um, above that. So um, typically you would roll up to the, the level in which the data becomes more regular that we can use these time series forecasting models. But in general, it's, it's most beneficial to, uh, to do it at that lowest possible level because it has the strongest correlation. Now, you did mention scalability, and that is a huge issue if you're generating your forecasts in Excel. 
Um, there are lots of predictive platforms out there that can generate millions of these forecasts at the low level in minutes. Uh, some of them in seconds. It's, it's quite impressive, and especially with cheaper computing power and distributed computing technologies like, like Spark and things like that. Um, scalability is just really um, has become a non-issue if you use the right tools. Um, and, and as much as I love Excel because it's really made analytics accessible to everybody, it can become sort of a boat anchor um, because of things like scale and because of the fact that if you want to do true predictive forecasting, those algorithms don't really exist in, in Excel. Excel has some simple exponential smoothing and those types of things. Um, if you're going to take on predictive forecasting, you really need to, to invest in a platform that will allow you to do that at scale. And that doesn't mean you have to go out and spend, you know, millions of dollars. There's open source options. There's great commercial options. There's lots of options out there now for doing this type of forecasting at scale. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that Excel analogy, right? I, I, I too love Excel, but to me, it's a little bit like my, my kitchen knife. Um, and for years, I didn't buy a food processor because, you know, I was very comfortable with my kitchen knife. And it's just amazing how quickly a food processor can chop a lot of onions relative to my kitchen knife. You know? <laughs> um, so anyway, that, that's, um, that, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Um, sometimes it's just hard to get out of the comfort zone, right? But another issue is when planning happens in silos and potentially at different levels of detail or, or to a different calendar. For example, finance does a financial plan, maybe on a monthly basis, and operations does an operational plan separately, maybe on a weekly basis. And the crazy thing is that ultimately the numbers need to match up, which leads to another round of work to reconcile. But if you have just one really high quality forecast, I mean, that problem goes away, right? Exactly. Um, I've had the privilege of working with many companies to create um, what we call a shared forecast. And um, if you forecast in this predictive um, way at the lowest level, the most granular level, you not only get the most accurate forecast, but you have the ability then to roll that up um, for planning, budgeting, whatever function you're going to use it, operations for whatever you're going to use it for. So that's another advantage of the bottoms up forecasting um, approach. Um, and the the key is to have a platform that can scale and allows you to, to build these uh, quickly, but also allows you to work collaboratively. So it's, it's, uh, if you think about it in the past, what ends up happening is each department generates their own forecast using their own set of assumptions and often their own, uh, their own uh, drivers or their own methodologies, their own algorithms. Now what we would be doing is everybody in a shared model would be doing it the same way with the same drivers, with the same approach, um, and you get a forecast, but you still need to build a consensus around that forecast. Um, and you need a tool that allows you to work collaboratively to build that consensus. So you've got to be able to review the forecast and when necessary, actually override the forecast. There are times where predictive forecasting doesn't work the way you want it to because there's pieces of information that weren't fed into the forecasting process that a human understands and may and ultimately end up adjusting the forecast. So it's uh, the low level forecasting at scale really enables you to create the forecast that can work for everybody, but it's still got to be a collaborative process where everybody gets together um, and, and comes up with a consensus forecast. Um, but when you do do that, the results are pretty dramatic in, in that there's no more finger pointing about 
why did we not meet numbers? Um, th there's just a lot more clarity around uh, why you got the actuals that you did. Um, and I, just about every CEO in the world would love to have his or her team collaborating on a single forecast that is more accurate than they've done in the past. Um, and with, with a predictive low-level forecast like this, you really have that option. You know, it's, it's funny. So you're not suggesting that everybody does a predictive forecast and then trusts the magic box. You're suggesting that let the predictive forecast do all the hard work of giving you an accurate baseline forecast. And then humans can collaborate with each other, but also collaborate with the predictive forecast and layer on things that they might know. I mean, the predictive forecast may not know that you're going to be buying a company in the Southwest. Yep. And, and to, to add to that, we, we'd like to introduce this concept of forecast value add, which is we then measure which of the approaches does the best job. So is the human overriding the, uh, the forecast adding value? That's the forecast value add. Sometimes it's a, it's a positive thing. Sometimes it's a negative thing. Sometimes, um, you know, you just want to track what the the data science is telling you versus what the first level manager tells you versus the final approved forecast um, consensus forecast is. And measuring that forecast value add then allows you to go back and say, okay, well, the we're getting a really good results from the predictive. Um, in in California, the overrides are are actually degrading our forecast forecast, but in Pennsylvania um, or the Northeast, the overrides of the forecast are actually adding along the value. And tracking forecast value add can really help you hone in on where you're adding or benefit or you're actually adding harm to the overall forecasting process. No, that's great. So you're not giving up accountability at all, right? Correct. So let's close this out. Um, do you have one or two major takeaways you'd like people to get from this discussion and um, what would they be? Well, I, I guess I'd just like to reemphasize this theme that I've been trying to keep throughout this conversation. That is, you really want to use all available information to generate your best possible business forecast. Um, don't do this simple approach that is um, easy and generates quick results. Um, if those results aren't what's best for your business. If taking a little more time using a little bit more advanced tool set allows you to leverage data that you have that you're not currently uh, leveraging, it's almost always really incredibly worth it to actually invest that time and, and resources. Because again, small changes in forecast accuracy can be dramatic to the bottom line. They can mean better budgeting, they can mean um, better numbers to Wall Street. They can mean um, better operational planning. It's just forecasting is at the heart of what most businesses do. And this is not, not where you want to cut corners. So predictive forecasting really allows you to leverage all the data you have to generate your best possible forecast, which generates your best possible business outcome. Second is there's a kind of a secondary benefit to doing this forecasting process of, of having a single source of truth around your forecast. So we talk about single source of truth around our data, but having a single, a single source of truth around our forecast where we have all, everybody's bought into it. It's driven off the best available data. 
It's not biased. It's not one group's view. It's a con consensus view that's bringing siloed groups together can, can have a lot of different benefits. Um, not only are you going to generate a better forecast, um, but it's, it's going to generate a more cohesive uh, business. Um, and ultimately, it's going to make your CEO happier, which I think everybody wants to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Happy CEO um, is happy everybody, I think. And, and um, I think predictive forecasting or incorporating predictive forecasting is not as hard as some people might think, is it? No, I, absolutely not. Typically, implementing these type of systems is just a few months, and, uh, and it can, be, can really be a competitive game changer. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us today, Scott. Thank you, A.G. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you. Do you have anything you would like to ask Qubit about analytics? You can tweet us at AskQubit or email us at info at qubit.com. That's info at Q-U-E-B-I-T dot com. Until next time.